How to Play, Episode 22, Chronos. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is Episode 22, and today we will be talking about Chronos. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Buffalo, New York, and this episode was recorded on October 16th, 2010. How to Play is a podcast about learning and teaching games. In this episode, I'm going to give you an explanation of how to play the game Chronos, just as if I was sitting across the table from you and we're about to play the game together. This podcast is intended to be used in learning how to play a game by yourself or to serve as a model on how to explain the rules of this game or others. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. And our discussion forum for the show is on the guild there at BoardGameGeek, so join up. Also, we have all the How to Play resources. Access to the episodes, the discussion forums, the teaching guides, they're all available and linked at the How to Play Geek list. And you can find a link to that there at the guild. Check out that newly revised How to Play Geek list. Hopefully that can be the resource there for you to access any of our explanations, discussion forums, and those fabulous new teaching guides. Most episodes of How to Play, including this one, have teaching guides, which are essentially outlines of the explanations I give on How to Play, and you can print those out and they'll help you the next time you need to teach the game. If you'd like to contact me, you can contact me there at the Guild, on BoardGameGeek, or directly at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. If you enjoy and benefit from How to Play resources, consider making a donation at my website, howtoplaypodcast.com. And as a final note, I want to recognize that How to Play is over one year old. We got started on October 12th, 2009, and after a year, we are still going strong, and I hope to put out a lot more great episodes over the next year. Now it's time to get to today's game, Kronos. So this may seem like an unusual choice, as it's not one of the most highly rated games there at BoardGameGeek, but one of the reasons I don't think it's on a lot of people's radar is because it's a very difficult game to learn to play. The rulebook is horrendous, but once you dig through all that and figure out what it's really trying to say and sit down and play a game, you'll find that there's really a good game in there with a very interesting thematic tie-in of time travel. I know there's a lot of people who bought this game, picked up the rules, their brain melted as they tried to read it, they put it back in the box and put it back on the shelf. Well, dust that copy of Kronos off, I'm going to teach it to you in a comprehensible manner. I know this for a fact because my copy was given to me by a friend in my game group, Rodney. Hello, Rodney, who had a real hard time figuring this game out, so he gave it to me. So I dedicate this episode to Rodney. Rodney, thank you very much. For making this episode possible. And I know there's a lot of you out there like Rodney who have this game and have yet to puzzle it out. So hopefully this episode can help you out. So what makes this game fun? Well, it has this interesting theme of traveling through time. And it's a strategic game of tile placement played simultaneously on three different boards. And each of these boards interact with each other in interesting ways. If you've played Tigris and Euphrates, it's like three simultaneous games of Tigris and Euphrates. And you can affect more than one board at one time, which makes for a really neat game. In fact, this is the most interesting use I've seen of trying to implement the idea of time travel into a board game. I know there may be some other podcasters out there, maybe one by an, a certain name of Tom Vassell, who would recommend that you play a game called Duel of Ages, which uses time travel. Ugh. Duel of Ages is just 
a complete dice fest. You just you have these little chits on this modular board and you just roll dice, check a chart, roll dice, check a chart, roll dice, check a chart. In fact, dice fest is probably a, a poor word to use because dice fest makes it sound as if the game is actually fun. I mean, there's a lot of dice games out there that, that provide a lot of entertainment and, and Duel of Ages is not one of them. Maybe you could call it a, a dice funeral or something as halfway through it, everybody's crying and just wishes it was over. In fact, I think Tom Vassell changed his tune a little bit recently in a segment he did in, in episode 184. Maybe I'll find, see if I can dig that out, uh, in a segment that Tom and I did together. And I'll put that at the end of the episode. You can hear Tom and I debate and talk about two of our favorite games. Now this game, Chronos, this is a game about time travel that I can get behind. The idea of time travel is cleverly integrated into those mechanics. Now because of the way the different boards interact, it can get a bit confusing and complex. And that's what this episode is here to do. Help you understand that, help you understand the goals of what you're trying to do in each of these different periods. And once you figure out the basic concepts, the goal and the actions that you do on your turn aren't really that complicated. And the excitement of seeing how the board interacts with each other is really an achievement in game design. And I think it's something more people should open up to and give it a shot. So that's why I want to do this episode on a game that hasn't gotten the attention it deserves because of this awful rule book. But once you get into that game, it's a very entertaining and fun game experience. So here we go, Kronos. Kronos was designed by Arnaud Urban and Ludovic Viala. I apologize, gentlemen, if I pronounced your names incorrectly. It was released in the year 2006. It can play between two and five players, and I recommend playing it with between three and five players. Complexity rating. Kronos is a black diamond. This is definitely a game for gamers. You really need people who really are going to invest themselves in trying to figure out what's going on on all three of these different boards and figure out how to best use their actions to score points in the game. This is not going to be a game you're going to want to use with non-gamers. Though if the game is explained well, the strategic concepts in the game are not that complex, and a player can catch on and play the game quite strategically in their first play. Though I would put in a warning that due to the multitude of options in this game, this is one of those games where analysis paralysis could set in if you have people who get overwhelmed by too many options. So the structure of the explanation is I'll start with a hook that will introduce the game. We'll get into the meat of the rules and finish up with a hamster to give you some basic strategy and pull it all together. Then later in today's musings, I'm going to talk about rule books and what makes bad rule books and how to make better rule books. So I hope you'll stay tuned to the end of the episode for that. It's time to get to the explanation. Before we get to the explanation, let me recommend to you that if you own the game, that's the best case scenario, pull that game out and look at it so that you can look at the components and the board to help you in understanding this explanation. If you don't own the game, before you listen to this or as you listen to this, look at some of the components online to help you be able to visualize and put all together what I'm talking about. All right, so let's start up our time machine and let's get to the hook. Part one, the hook, what the game is about. Welcome to Kronos. You have a time machine and you and your time traveling sidekick are gonna use it to make you rich. You're going to control two time travelers who will be bouncing from three different periods in time to try to assert your control in each of those three ages. You'll be trying to get rich by building building tiles of three different types. There are orange military buildings, purple religious buildings, and blue residential buildings. 
The board for this game has three copies of the exact same land, because we can affect the land at three different time periods. Of course, if you build something in the earliest age, that building will ripple forward through time and will place that building on the other two boards as well. Though, players are able to interact with all three of the different boards, so that throughout the game, all three of the ages are going to look quite different. And due to the mysteries of time travel, you have to always be wary that some meddlesome adventure might change something in the past, and that, of course, will drastically affect the future. You're trying to assert your dominance in the land in the three most significant time periods in its history, represented by the three boards. You'll be doing this by building clusters of building tiles called domains, and you'll need to seek particular buildings to control those domains. Now the trick is that because of the significant changes in culture, each age, or each board, has different wants in order for you to assert control of the domains during that time period. On the first board, which represents the Age of Might, this was a barbaric time. So those in control of the largest orange military buildings and domains will be able to collect money, and you get money from the value of the blue residential buildings. On the second board, or the Middle Age, that's called the Age of Faith. And in this time period, the land was overcome with religious fervor. And so whoever has the largest purple religious building in a domain controls it, and they'll be able to collect money and they get money from the blue residential buildings again. The third board, or the final age, is called the Age of Reason. And this is quite different, because in the latest time period, all the power went to the urban centers. So the player who controls the population in the blue residential buildings gets to collect taxes, and they collect taxes from the value of the purple religious and the orange military buildings. Let's go over that one more time. The earliest age, the Age of Might, is controlled by the largest orange building and collects money from blue buildings. In the Middle Age, the Age of Faith, control is based on the largest purple building and collects on blue buildings. And the final age, the Age of Reason, you control it through the blue buildings, and if you control it, you get to collect money based on the value of the orange and purple buildings. You need to understand and remember those three goals in order to understand your goals for the game. So your time travelers are going to be jumping between those three time periods, looking for the best opportunities in each board to take control so that you can collect the money. Now know that there are only two of you. You only have two adventures and three time periods, and you're going to have to choose wisely where to concert your efforts. There are seven turns, and at the end of the fourth and seventh turns, you're going to get to collect your money from the areas in which you control, and the richest time traveler will win the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So one more time, let's go over your goals. Your goals are to control domains or groups of adjacent tiles so that you're able to collect taxes. A quick review of what gives you control and how much money you get to collect. They're based on the different colors based on what board you're on. On the first board, the Age of Might, you get control with the largest orange military building. You'll get to collect money based on the blue residential buildings. On the second board, the Age of Faith, control is in the largest purple building. You get to collect money again based on the blue residential buildings. The third age is kind of the reverse of the first two. You get control based on the blue residential buildings, and you collect money based on both the value of the orange and purple buildings totaled up. So once you understand that, you know what you're trying to do. Start off trying to go after one of those ages, 
and build a large domain, try to gain control of it, and then try to increase its value so you can collect more taxes. And you're going to do all of this by playing construction cards. The heart of your turn is you'll have four construction cards, and by playing these construction cards, you're going to take some of the different actions in the game. Let's talk about how to play your turn. How to play your turn. So the heart of the turn is playing your four construction cards. These cards will be a random mix of the three different colors in the game, orange, purple, or blue. So for example, you might have two orange cards, a blue card, and a purple card in your hand. And you're gonna to try to use all those cards and play them to take five different possible actions. And those actions are building buildings, upgrading buildings, demolishing buildings, populating buildings, or renovating buildings. And I'll talk about all five of those things in more detail. But first, we gotta talk about the use of your time traveler pawns. Each player has two time travelers, and they start in the Age of Might, and they can bounce back and forth between the different time periods. In order to affect one of the time periods, you have to have your pawn at that time period. You have four cards, and you have two time travelers. Each time traveler allows you to play two of your cards. So I could use two cards with one of my pawns to affect the Age of Might, and I could move my other pawn to the Age of Faith and use two of my cards to play those cards there and affect that board. You can move your pawns at will throughout the turn, but each time you move the pawn from one board to another, you have to pay one money. Each time you move your time traveler pawn from one age to another, you are activating your time machine. And that's why it costs one money. And when you do that, you have to make a sound like this. Or 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 la 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 or sparkle, 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 or You know, something like that. So this is an easy thing to forget. Remember, when you're playing your cards, each of your pawns allows you to play two cards. So you have to make sure that that pawn is at the correct spot in order for you to take an action on that board. On the different boards, you can do different things. On the first two boards, the two earliest time periods, the Age of Might and the Age of Faith, you can do three different things. You can build buildings, upgrade buildings, or demolish buildings. Let's talk about those three things. First of all, building buildings. Remember, you can only do this in the first two ages. To build a building, it's simple. You simply play a number of cards equal to the value of the building, which is printed on that building tile and can range from one to five. There are three colors of buildings, and each color has three different sizes, a small, medium, and large building. The small buildings all cost one, the medium buildings will cost either two or three, and the large buildings cost between four and five. So if I want to build a medium building, the medium orange building costs two. I'd simply play my two orange cards and I can build that building. Remember, of course, if I want to build that large building that costs four, I would need to have both of my pawns there because each pawn lets me play two cards. So I could use both my time travelers to play four cards to play that largest building. When you build a building in an earlier time period, it ripples forward to the future. If I build a building in the earliest age, the Age of Might, I'm going to take three copies of that building, because after I decide where I want to put that building, I'm going to place the same building in the exact same spot on the boards in the future. The board in this game is divided up into squares, and all the building sizes are squares as well. 
The smallest buildings will just occupy one square of the game board. The medium-sized buildings are two by two, so they'd occupy four squares on the game board. And the largest buildings are three by three, so they'd occupy nine squares on the game board. If you build that smallest building, that's all that happens. You just place that building where it is and you're done. If you build a medium or a large building, that building is large enough to ripple through time. So, you take three copies of that same building and place it in the identical spot you placed it on the original board. When you play those buildings into the future ages, uh, you have to make an appropriate time travel sound like boodly, boodly, boodly. As you put each one down, you go boodly, just like that, boodly, or something like that, like or push. Yeah, that's a good one. You do it like this, push. So I play my original orange building, and then I would play the other two orange buildings. Push, push, or bloop. I mean, the variation you can you can do a variation however you like, but that's the basic idea. It's in the rules. Look it up. Okay then, so when you're done making your cool time ripple sounds, you receive a money reward for building. If you build in the Age of Might, you get one money. If you build in the Age of Faith, you get two money. The reason you get more money in the Age of Faith is because it's riskier to build in the Age of Faith. Why? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But you only get paid for medium and large buildings. You also only ripple medium and large buildings. Now when you build orange or purple buildings, Orange and purple buildings have an owner, and you mark those with your control cube. These are small cubes of your player color. You place those cubes for orange and purple buildings only, and in the Age of Might and Age of Faith. The Age of Reason works a little bit differently, because when you place orange and purple buildings in the Age of Reason, it has been so long that these buildings are decayed. They are ruins. So they have a rune side on the back side. So you're going to place it in the same spot, but you're going to flip it over as ruins, and you do not put a control cube on runes. The blue buildings work a little bit differently because there's no ownership for blue buildings. You ripple them forward, you don't put control cubes on them because no one owns them, and you don't flip them over in the Age of Reason. In fact, the blue buildings aren't even two-sided, so that'll help you remember that. It's important to know that buildings are limited by the available stock. So if a particular building type or size runs out, you're not allowed to build that building. So let's go over that quickly. So to build a building, play a number of cards equal to the value of the building. Small buildings do not ripple. Medium and large buildings do ripple. Purple and orange buildings get control cubes. They also are ruins on the third board. Blue buildings do not get control cubes and don't flip over on the third board. There's very good reasons for all of these little nitpicky rules. Because the purple and the orange buildings generally determine control, you need to know whose they are. The blue buildings are generally just point scoring buildings, so that's why we don't mark them with control cubes. And the reason we flip over the purple and orange buildings on the third board is because this allows players to upgrade them to increase their value later on. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Some of you may have caught that the large buildings, some of them cost five, and realized it's not possible to build a building that costs five on one turn because you only have four cards. Well, that leads us to our next action, upgrading buildings. You can only upgrade just like building on the first two boards, the Age of Might and the Age of Faith. And to upgrade, you simply pay the difference between the cost of the two buildings with the correct colored cards. So if I had a medium purple building which cost three, and I wanted to upgrade it to a large purple building which cost five, I simply pay two purple cards to do that. 
When I upgrade to medium or large buildings, some of the same things happen as when I build buildings. I get a money reward for upgrading to either a medium or a large building. I get one money from the Age of Might or two money from the Age of Faith. The buildings, we need to upgrade those ripples through time. Push. So if it's a medium building changing to a large building, you need to reflect that on the ripple. Push. If you upgrade to a medium building, you're going to then ripple that medium building through time. Wait for it. Push. There it is. Again, make sure they're marked with control cubes. And the final age, the purple and the orange ones, are flipped over as ruins. The third thing you can do on those first two boards is destroy buildings. You can only destroy the small little size one buildings that fill up one square. And there's ones that start pre-printed on the map. There's a bunch of small blue buildings that start pre-printed. You can't destroy buildings that are printed on the map. In order to destroy one of those small buildings on the first two ages, all you have to do is you pay one money and pay one card of the color to be destroyed. So if you wanted to destroy a chapel, that's the small purple building, you'd simply pay one purple and pay one money and make sure that your time traveler was in the board where you wanted to destroy it. So that's what you can do on the first two boards. You can build buildings, upgrade buildings, and destroy the tiny small buildings. On the third board, the Age of Reason, you have two very different actions you can do. Remember, on that third board, I'm trying to gain control with blue, and I get points for the value of the orange and purple buildings. Now, you may recall that when we rippled for the blue buildings, they didn't get any control cubes on them. In order to get control of the blue buildings, you have to populate them. With your pawn in the third age, in order to populate a blue building, a hamlet or a town or a city, all you have to do is play one blue card for each control cube you want to play into that blue building. Now, each blue building can hold an amount of cubes equal to the number printed on the building. So the small ones, it's one. The mediums can hold three cubes. And the cities can hold five cubes. So when you look at a domain, what you're going to look at is whoever has the most cubes in all those adjacent tiles will have control of that domain and will be able to collect money from the purple and the orange buildings. So for example, there might be two towns in a domain, each of which hold three control cubes. And if I have four cubes in that domain, two on one town and two on the other, then I'm in control of that, and I'm going to be able to get all the money from the purple and the orange buildings. The other action you can do, only in the Age of Reason, is you can renovate those ruins. Remember how we would flip those over to the ruined side? Ruined buildings are only worth one or two. You may want to flip those back over so that they're worth their full value, which could be two, three, four, or five. In order to flip them over, you just need to play the amount of cards shown on the ruin. So on the medium ruined buildings, you need to pay one card. On the large ruined buildings, you need to play two cards. So if there's a large purple abbey, the large purple religious building, and I want to increase the value of that, on the ruined side, it has a two on it. Right now, it only has a value of two. But if I play two purple cards, I get to flip over that abbey, and now it's worth five. And if I'm in control of the domain, because I have population markers in the town next to the abbey, now I'm going to get to get the money for that abbey. Is this making sense so far? Well, let's review. You're trying to construct domains that are very valuable and have control of those domains. So you're going to pick which of those boards you want to go after and do that. On the first board, you're going to want to have a really large orange building and have a bunch of blue buildings because you get control with the orange building and you collect money from the blue buildings. In the second age, that age of faith, you want to get control with a really big purple building. And then you want to have a lot of blue buildings adjacent to that because you're going to collect money based on blue buildings. And in the final age, you're going to want those population cubes. 
you're gonna to wanna to get those population cubes into a domain that's connected to a lot of purple and orange buildings because you get control from the population cubes and you're gonna to get to collect money based on the value of those purple and orange buildings. On your turn, you're gonna play up to four cards in order to accomplish these goals. And there's five different actions that you can do. In order to play in an area, you need one of your pawns in that area. Each pawn allows you to play up to two cards to affect that age. On the first two boards, you can build buildings, upgrade buildings, or demolish the small buildings. On the final board, you can lay population cubes or renovate the orange and purple buildings to increase domain's values. That's it. Those are your goals, and that's how you're gonna go about doing it. At the beginning of your turn, you're gonna have four random cards. And if you don't like those cards, you can pay a price of two money to exchange some or all of those cards. So say I had two orange and a blue and a purple, I could pay two money to get rid of the blue and purple and draw two off the top of the deck and hope I get more orange. Then is the action phase. This is where you're gonna play up to four cards and do those five different actions. And while you're doing that, you, you might move time travelers back and forth in order to affect the boards that you wanna affect. Sparkle, sparkle, sparkle. And finally, you draw back up to a total of four cards. If you have one card left over that you didn't want to play, you can choose to either keep that for the next turn, or you can get rid of it so you can draw four fresh new cards. Usually, you want to play all four cards if you can find any way to benefit yourself. Because there's only seven turns, you get four cards per turn, you only get 28 cards to play. You want to use all of your possible actions to their best possible effect. And at the very end of the fourth and the seventh turns, you're going to get to collect money. You'll collect money only on the two of the three boards where you choose to leave your time travelers. So know that you're not going to get to score the whole board. And you get all the money from the different domains where you have control based on what those different boards want and how much they pay out depending on the board that it's in. Those are the goals of the game and your basic actions. But there are some important rules that you have to follow when you're doing those actions. We need to talk about some important building rules. Building rules. Building rules. Okay, so when you decide to play a building, you can play a building pretty much anywhere in the land that you want to. Now, of course, you have to play buildings based on where your pawns are. But there are also three other rules that you have to follow. Those rules are called the rule of hierarchy, the rule of dominion, and the geographic rules. Let's start with the rule of hierarchy. The rule of hierarchy is this. The largest orange military or purple religious building in a domain has to be unique. What does that mean? That means if we have a domain, a bunch of adjacent tiles, and I have a medium purple building there, and that's the biggest purple building, another player isn't allowed to just go in and build a medium purple building in that same domain. Because right now I have control of that with purple, and you're not allowed to tie me. That's breaking this rule of hierarchy. That person would either need to overbuild me, or sneak in and take control. Another example is if I have a large orange building, you can't just come in and place a large orange building next to it. Now here's where it gets a bit confusing. If I have a large orange building and a medium orange building, you could come in and play a medium orange building in that same domain because this rule of hierarchy only affects the largest building and it only works for orange and purple buildings. And the reason for this, and it makes sense if you understand the reason, is because on those first two boards, control is based on who has the largest. And you can't just plop in and tie for control. You have to find a way to take it over. In order to take it over, usually you're gonna have to connect to it from another domain. And if we're gonna talk about connecting domains, we have to talk about the rule of dominion. And the rule of dominion is you're not allowed to connect domains except 
with blue buildings. The only time you can connect domains, that's groups of adjacent tiles, is if you do it with blue buildings. You need to remember that. All right, so let's talk about taking over someone else's domain because that's something you're probably gonna wanna do in the game. You're gonna want to take control of those domains that are worth the most points. How do you manage to get control of domains? Well, the first and easiest way is to build that largest building in a group first. If I build the large orange building in the Age of Might, nobody else can come in and play a large orange building in that same domain. They have to take me over by connecting domains. So it makes it a lot harder for someone to take control of it. A second way you could try to take over a domain is if someone just had control of a domain with a medium-sized building, you could come down and plop down a large building to take control of it. Once someone has one of those large orange or purple buildings in an area, it's pretty hard to take control of it. In order to take control of it, you're going to have to connect two domains to take control of it. Because I can't just plop down another large building next to it. I have to connect into it if I want to take control. So let's say you have a, a nice domain over here and you have a large orange building in it. What I might do is build my own really nice domain right next to it with lots of other orange buildings, including a large orange building myself. And then I'm going to connect it. Remember, to connect it, I must use a blue building. And when I connect it, now there's conflict. If you connect two domains and the rule of hierarchy is broken, and it is because we have two large orange buildings, there's going to be conflict and we have to resolve that conflict. How we resolve it is sort of Tigris and Euphrates style if you've played that game. What happens is we look on either side of the connection and we total up the value of that color. So we, we total up all the numbers on all the orange buildings on the left side, we total up all the values of all the orange buildings on the right side, and we see which of those domains has a stronger military and the side with the higher total wins. The loser has to downsize their largest building. So they have that large orange building. They have to take that off and replace it with a medium-sized building. The medium-sized building can be placed in any of the four of the nine squares where that large building occupied. Haha, -ha, you have successfully taken over their domain. So let's look at that with another example. Say we're on the Age of Faith and I want to take control of a domain. Remember, Age of Faith is purple. So you have a medium purple building on the left side and I have a medium purple building on the right side, and maybe I have a couple of small buildings attached to that, and I connect our two domains. I have to connect it with a blue building. Now I've connected, and the largest purple building is tied. So we have a conflict, and we're gonna count the values printed on those buildings, not just the number of buildings themselves. So we count the purple buildings on one side, which is a total of three, the purple buildings on the right side, which is a total of, say, five, and the person on the left loses. So they have to take their medium building off and replace it then with a small building. And now I've sort of taken better control of that area. So that's what connecting domains is all about. Usually what you're trying to do is take over some point scoring buildings. So you build up a strong domain and then connect to someone else's domain. Of course, there's nothing to stop other players from connecting two domains just to watch some fireworks happen and for their own personal entertainment. Now it's very possible that when you connect these things that there might be a tie of the values on the two different sides. How a tie is handled is first, if the person who connected the two domains is involved in the conflict, whoever connected those two domains automatically loses, which is a bad thing. So if you're gonna connect, I would verify to make sure you're winning, because if you're tied, you're gonna lose. Secondly, if the connecting player is not involved, then they get to choose who loses the battle. So the tiebreaker is the connecting player loses, and if they're not involved, then that connecting player gets to choose who loses. 
Now after the end of that conflict, you're going to have to verify and make sure a further conflict doesn't occur. Sometimes you have sort of a chain reaction of conflicts. So after you downsize that building and the owner places it, just verify you don't have to have another conflict after that. If there's an orange and a purple conflict, you do the orange conflict first and then the purple conflict. And when a player has to downsize, you then have to reflect that downsizing on the future boards. And that downsizing could lead to a second conflict on future boards, so pay attention to that. But that's the rule of hierarchy and the rule of domain. Those are the two tricky ones, and those are all about legal placement of buildings and how to establish and take over control of domains. Now, when you build these buildings and ripple buildings through time, a lot of weird things can sort of happen. And I'll talk about some of the more rare events that can happen when you're doing these ripplings in the footnotes. But one of the more common things that can happen, and this can be actually a strategic play, is that you could build a building in the past, say on the Age of Might board, which would ripple onto a section where a building has been built on the Age of Faith. In the rules, they call this a temporal paradox, which makes it sound scarier and more complicated than it actually is. So if I upgrade a larger building on the Age of Might, and it ripples onto the Age of Faith, in a spot where somebody built a building there, it would blow that building up. And that's why you get paid extra money for building buildings in the Age of Faith or upgrading buildings in the Age of Faith because you're opening yourself up to someone coming in and later destroying that by building a building in the past. So this is just something you need to be aware of. If you build in the Age of Faith, you open up the possibility to someone in the past building a building to destroy your building. The final rules about building buildings that you need to know are the geography restrictions. We have rivers, forests, and mountains, and they all can affect how you build buildings. First of all, the rivers. There's a river that runs through the land on all three boards, and on those river squares, the only buildings that can be built on those squares are the medium and large blue buildings. And this can have a great effect on where you choose to build buildings and how you're able to upgrade buildings. So just keep that in mind when you're placing your buildings. Only medium and large blue buildings can be placed on the river squares. Then there's two types of terrain that are on the board there to sort of shrink the board for fewer players, and those are the forests and the mountains. Around the outside of the board, there's a ring of mountains covering some of the squares. And then on another inner circle, there's a ring of forest. And the purpose of those is to make the board smaller if you're playing with a less than the full complement of five players. If you're playing with five players, the forest and the mountains have no effect. If you're playing with four players, the mountains come into effect. And if you're playing with two or three players, the forests come into effect. And what those pieces of terrain do is you have to pay extra cards to build or upgrade in those sections of the board. And that just sort of encourages those players to build in the middle to encourage that conflict to occur so things aren't spaced out quite as much. But those are the three considerations that you need to think about when you're building the buildings. First of all, the rule of hierarchy. The largest purple or orange building in a domain must be unique because this signifies control. And if you want to take something over, someone else is in control of it, you'll probably have to connect into it. And you'll have to connect following the rule of dominion. And that is you can only connect domains with blue buildings. And then just keep in mind that if you're going to build across that river, you need a medium or large blue building. And keep in mind if you have less than five players, the forest and mountains, you have to play extra cards. It doesn't quite matter which card you use, it doesn't have to be a matching color or anything, but you have to expend an extra card to build there. Those are the building rules. Let's get to the scoring. Scoring your domains. 
Okay, so there's a turn track for this game. It has seven spaces, and every time each player is taking a turn, you advance the turn track. The fourth and seventh spaces on this turn track are a darker color, because those are scoring rounds. And so when you play your fourth and seventh turns, you have to be really aware of that. You're trying to set yourself up to get the most money possible. The other thing that's very important is at the end of your turn, when you're all finished doing your actions, you need to make sure that your pawns are on the two ages where you want to collect money. Remember, you're not going to be able to collect money from the entire board. You're only going to be able to collect money from two of the ages on the board, and you have to leave your pawns on the ages where you want to collect money. So you'll get that set up, and then you'll collect money from any domain in which you have control, and you'll get to collect money based on the criteria based on whichever age you're in. Let's do a quick review of what determines control and the value of each domain in the three different ages. On the first board, the age of might, Control is based on who has the largest orange building, and the value is based on the total value of the blue buildings in that domain. On the Age of Faith, the second board, the largest purple building determines control, and the value is based on the total value of the blue buildings in the domain. And then the third board, called the Age of Reason, is sort of the reverse of those first two, because control is based on the population cubes in the blue buildings. Whoever has the most in a domain will get to collect money. And the value of the domains in that third age is the total value of all the purple and the orange buildings, which players may have increased through renovation. And one thing that works a little bit different in this game is that scoring occurs at the end of each player's turn. And it doesn't occur simultaneously at the end of all players' turns for that round. So one thing that might happen is if I'm playing first, I might score and collect money, and I might collect for one particularly valuable domain, and then the next player will go, and he will manage to take over that big domain, and he'll also get to collect the money from that domain. So that scoring works out a little bit differently in that more than one player could score for the same domain. So everybody plays their seven turns, and they get to collect their money at the end of the fourth and the seventh turns, and everybody counts up all their money, and whichever time-traveling adventurer has the most money will win the game. is much better. I had a bit of a time machine mishap. Let's get on with the hamster. Part 3. The hamster. How to win the game. Okay, like I said previously, you get 7 turns. You can only play 4 cards per turn. So you only get to play 28 cards throughout the whole game. So this game is all about utilizing those actions in the way that best benefits you and finding a way to establish control of valuable domains to earn the most money. So how do you do that? Well, when you first get started, you really just maybe want to choose one age of where you want to develop a domain. You want to get strong control of that domain and then make that domain more valuable by building the appropriate building. For example, I might say, all right, I'm going to go after that age of might and I'm going to build a, a large orange building and then I'm going to connect some blue buildings to it so it's worth more. 
And then after I've established that, I might look at a second board, maybe the Age of Reason, where I can find some areas of the board that might be able to earn me some more money. So there is a bit of a balancing act there. You want to build those buildings that establish you to earn some strong control, like you want to get to that large building if possible. But it's no good to own a, a big domain that's not worth anything. So you also need to increase its value by building the scoring buildings, which is usually those blue buildings. On the flip side, if all you do is just build scoring buildings and you don't really have a lot of control buildings, then another player might see that, ooh, look at that delicious domain. Build a few control buildings and connect to your delicious domain and steal all your points. And those are the sort of opportunities you want to look for, too. If, if a player has built up a domain that's worth a lot but isn't protected, you want to see if you can take that over. You need to be careful of considerations like building in that age of faith is risky, like I mentioned. And on the flip side, look at the potential of destroying buildings in the age of faith. Be aware of geographic restrictions. That river can really get you boxed in. And you have the potential to box other players in so that they can't upgrade. So be thinking forward to, am I going to be able to upgrade that building to medium and large like I want to, or am I going to get boxed in? And as always, our trademark piece of advice is very useful in this game. Do what the other players aren't doing. There are three boards, and you could score a lot of money from each board. Obviously, you don't want to get too involved in buildings that a lot of the other players are trying to score on. You want to look at the areas of the board where not many players are, which will allow you to expand and take control of that area. You want to jump in on that age of reason. If everybody's focused on those first two ages of building buildings, you want to jump into that age of reason and drop a bunch of population cubes because there's a lot of points to be had there. So look for the opportunities that other players aren't seeing. Where you are in the turn order can allow you to really take advantage of this. There's advantages to going first and last in the turn order in this game. As turn order never changes throughout this game, you sort of have to take advantage of where you are in that turn order to best effect. If you're going first, you can really assert your control on where you want to start building. You also get to score first, which can be a nice advantage. If you're last in the turn order, this can be a nice thing also, as you can see where all the other players are focusing and try to direct your attention to the areas that the other players have ignored. So that turn order position can have a great effect on your gameplay. Well, that's about all the advice I have for you. Use all of your actions to best effect and take control of some valuable domains. I hope you'll enjoy experimenting with the mind-bending permutations of time travel. Good luck and have fun. Part 4. Footnotes and Musings. Alright, so it's time for our footnotes and musings. We'll start with our footnotes. We have a few of these, what I like to call vegetables. Those are those little tiny rules that, that can be a stickler. And in this game, these vegetables can sort of be important because of all the different possibilities for the way that the buildings are rippled and the way that things change on the three different boards. It can get sort of complex. And this is sort of my favorite part of this game and my least favorite part of the game. I really like and really enjoy watching how these three different boards interact with each other and how the boards change during gameplay. But the worst part about this is that sometimes it's hard to make sure that you're following the rules and sometimes it can be a little bit confusing as far as what should be downsized, what should not be downsized, what follows the rules, what breaks the rules. And so you really need to pay attention 
to as the board changes, whenever a building is added to the board or a building is downsized, you really need to make sure and check that domain and make sure that the rule of hierarchy is being followed, the rule of dominion is being followed, and they're following those geographic rules. It's very easy to, if you're not watching carefully, to play a building not following the rules and then catch it a couple turns later. Oh, there was a conflict here. So you really need to pay attention as players are adding buildings to the board or changing the board. I have a couple hints for you to help you make sure that you're following all those rules correctly. In the Age of Reason, remember that the Age of Reason only reflects the implications of what players have done on the previous two boards. And it's only going to contain those buildings that have rippled forward. Remember, small buildings can't ripple. So the only thing that's going to show up on that Age of Reason is medium and large buildings. The Age of Reason starts with some small blue buildings, just like all the other boards start with. But no small buildings are going to end up on that Age of Reason because players can't build them there and they don't ripple forward. Another small little vegetable is when you downsize things, you reflect the downsizes in the future. But if you downsize a medium building, it would downsize to a small on that board. But the ripples in the future would disappear. So in that way, you're not going to have any small buildings ever placed onto that Age of Reason board. The other thing that's weird about that Age of Reason board is it's possible that those rules will get broken when things ripple forward onto that Age of Reason board, and that's okay. What do I mean by that? Like you could, for example, build a building in the Age of Faith, like a purple building, and it would ripple forward to the Age of Reason and actually connect two domains on the Age of Reason, and that's actually a legal play. The rule of dominion doesn't have to be followed from ripples onto that Age of Reason board. However, when you play things onto the Age of Might and they ripple onto the Age of Faith board, then those rules do have to be followed and some strange things happen. These are more of those temporal paradoxes and special cases that some examples are given in the rules. For example, if you were to build a religious building in the first board, the Age of Might, and it's going to ripple onto the Age of Faith board. If it were to break a rule, for example, it would tie a building for the hierarchy. It would not ripple forward. You could still place that building in the Age of Might. It just wouldn't ripple forward because it was breaking the rules. Same thing with the Rule of Dominion. If you placed a building, say a purple building again, in the Age of Might, and it was supposed to ripple forward into the Age of Faith board, but it would connect two domains on that Age of Faith board, it does not ripple forward into the Age of Faith. You can still place it, but it would not ripple forward. So simply put, as simple as this confusion can get, is that you have to follow that Rule of Dominion and Rule of Hierarchy on the first two boards. But on that third board, on the, on the rippling forward onto that third board, the Age of Reason, those rules do not apply. A couple more things about that Age of Reason board. If I place some population cubes into, say, a town, and later that town gets upgraded to a city on a previous board, when we ripple forward, those population cubes get to stay on that building. You don't have to take them off. They stay in that building. It just gets upgraded. Now, another thing that could happen is I could have one of those medium purple buildings and I renovated it but then someone earlier upgrades it so if they upgrade it it gets to the larger size building but it goes back to being a rune so your renovation is kind of wasted at that point remember that if there's an orange and a purple conflict you resolve the orange conflict first 
then if you still have to, you would resolve the purple conflict. Why wouldn't you have to? Well, keep in mind that after a conflict, someone's going to downsize, go to a smaller size, and that's probably going to separate that domain into two smaller bits. And that's a natural consequence of having a conflict, is usually that chunk that you're trying to get connected into will probably break in half. And then you'll just sort of have to connect back into that so you can take full control of that big juicy domain. Remember that whoever is downsizing the building gets to choose which of the squares they're going to put that on. So if I have to downsize my medium building, you know, it covers four squares, I get to place my small building. I choose which of those four squares I want to place my building on. And the final vegetable, the tiebreaker. There is no tiebreaker for this game. So if at the end you have two players that are tied for the win, then I suggest the player who's listened to the most episodes of the How to Play podcast is the winner because my listeners are the real winners. Two more footnotes of note. There is a variant printed in the rule book that is a very interesting variant. That variant, they, they call it Hold'em. I don't know why they call it Hold'em, but they do. What the Hold'em variant is, is you put three cards face up at the beginning of the game that are offered as an exchange pool. So players are still allowed to do that exchange for some or all of their hands for two money, but there's also this exchange pool of three cards. So if they're not happy with the random cards that they were given, they can exchange one of their cards or multiple cards for cards in the exchange pool. The rule is, is you can only exchange four cards of one color. So if all cards are different colors, you could only exchange for one card. But say there were two blue and one orange, I could either exchange for one of the orange one of the blue, two of the blue, or make no exchange at all. This is a really nice variant because it takes away a bit of the randomness in this game. You have some people who complain that there's just a little bit too much luck in this game, a little bit too much luck in that card draw. And if you have players who sometimes complain about bad dice rolls or bad card draws or don't like those sort of things in their games, then you're definitely going to want to use this variant the first time that you play. I've also played it without this variant, and I enjoy it without the variant because it forces players to be creative and use the cards that they have. And if they're not happy with those cards, they can take their chances on the exchange. And if they don't get it, well, too bad. It's a board game. Deal with it. The other side effect about using this Hold'em variant is it's a lot easier for players to get three or four of the same colored card. And that's kind of good because it opens up the strategic possibilities, but it also definitely changes the way the game is played. Players are able to, for example, drop that large orange building on one turn a lot likelier than they would be in the original game. But it's a good variant, especially if you're looking to reduce the randomness in this game. The last footnote I would have is that the time travel adventure pawns are really great little plastic miniatures. There's two unique pawns for each player. And if you've been thinking about giving painting minis a go, if you maybe listen to episode E of the How to Play podcast and are thinking about it, this would be a great project for you. You've got 10 fun, neat little individual minis that would just look great with a little bit of painting attention. So consider that as your first painting project. Those are the vegetables. Those are my other footnotes. So now, let's get to the musings. Today's musing is about bad rule books. What makes them bad? And how could they be better? Let's start with thinking about the purpose of a rule book. A rule book actually has two purposes. Its first purpose is as a list of rules and a reference tool to reference throughout the game as you have questions. Its second purpose is to help you learn the game when you get the game so you understand the rules and are able to explain it to others. 
Now, for some reason, game companies are always building these rule books that are really focused on building rule books as a reference tool, and they forget about the importance of designing them to that second goal of teaching you how to play the game right after you open that box. Now, some game companies and some games haven't forgotten about this. They've provided separate tools within that game box to really help you learn the game, and I really appreciate the thought and effort that goes into that. We've seen that in sort of a, a rules package. We'll have games that will offer you two tools. A learning tool, maybe it's like a one-page pamphlet or a smaller book that goes over how to play the game. And then there's a separate booklet that lists all the rules in a, in a nice outlined, easily referenceable format. I love when game companies do that. I think that that is the way to do it, as you can't really accomplish both of those goals at the same time. If you go through the game in the way that it's easiest to learn the game, it's not going to be in the best order to sort of look up and refer to if you're trying to find a rule. So having those two separate tools, that's really the way to do that. So bravo to these companies like Mayfair. I, you know, I, I give gripes about the things that they've done with price fixing, but the way that they've handled having separate teaching tools, I have to give them props for that. We've also seen this in a couple of other games. El Grande comes to mind. El Grande has this one-page insert explaining to you what the game is about and then has its separate rule book. Bravo! That is a great way to do it. I also really like the Aaliyah style of rule book. The Aaliyah style sort of goes through the rules of the game in more detail to help you learn the game, but then has a margin, and in the margin, in bold, it has all the important rules in each section, which makes it a lot easier to find the important information when you're just going through it to try to find a rule. It's a great way to do it. A lot of game companies, you should copy this method. Or use the two-pack by having a, a teaching guide page or a couple pages and then your regular rule book. You really need to think about and consider that your rule book is going to teach your players the game. So with that in mind, I think about bad rule books and what makes bad rule books so terrible. Usually what makes bad rule books so terrible is that they don't have any consideration that they're trying to teach the game. They just contain a list of rules. And so I've got three pet peeves, three things that really bother me about bad rule books. And I guess these three things could also be applied to game explanations. When people explain the game, they, they tend to do these three bad things as well. So these are Ryan's three pet peeves about rule books slash game explanations. Pet peeve number one, bad introductions. Now most game companies are onto the idea that having some sort of introduction at the beginning of your rules is probably a good idea. But the thing is, most of these introductions are terrible. They're horrible. They either do a couple of things. Either they just explain the game completely in context of the theme, without any of the mechanics involved of how players actually do that or how the players actually take their turns. They'll say something like, In this game, you are a fairy princess trying to collect all of the fairy eggs to deliver to the fairy queen. At the end of the game, the player with the most fairy eggs have delivered is the winner. You didn't give us any of the mechanics of the game. That was just theme. Or what they might do is they might try to talk about the mechanics of the game, but they'll do it in such a vague way that it doesn't make any sense. And that's what this game does. It has this introduction, but if you read it, you really have no idea what it's talking about. In the introduction for this game, it really should go over what your goals are for the three different boards, because that's a very complicated but very important part of the game. 
Why doesn't it do that? I have no idea. My second pet peeve of rule books and explanations is the component overview. Now I understand rule books have decided to put this list of components at the beginning of the rule book. And one of the purposes of this is for you to check the components that are in the box and make sure that you have everything. That's great. But if you're going to do that, and if you're going to point those out at the beginning of a game, why would you just do that on its own? Why wouldn't you use this component overview to start to develop an understanding of the game in your players' minds? You know, it's got this one page of all the different components and the pictures of the components. Why would you waste that opportunity? Why wouldn't you just add one sentence? Like when it talks about the money. Here's the money, and what does it tell you? You can place this in the fourth compartment of your game box. Great! Who really cares? I think I could have figured that out. But what if instead you said, this is the money. Whoever has the most money at the end of the game is the winner. Good! Now you've provided something of value. I can see that, and I can see how it's used in the game. Why wouldn't you just add one sentence of how those pieces are used in the game? The cards. We have the pictures of the cards. Great. Who cares? Add one sentence. Just add one sentence, please, that says, you will get to play up to four of these cards on your turn to do the actions in the game. Would it be that hard to add that in there? Oh, boy. And I often see people explaining games. They'll, they'll go over the, the 15 different components. They'll tell you, well, these are the cards. These are these tiles. These are this. This is this. All right, who cares? If you're going to go over what all these pieces are, explain just like a little bit, like just a few words, what they're used for, please. Give us some sort of contextual understanding of how those pieces are used in the game. Just don't go through them willy-nilly. All right, so this is turning into a bit of a rant. I, I apologize for that. I'm, I'm going to try to be less ranty as I get to my third pet peeve, but I don't think I can because this is the one that bothers me the most. Rule books love to explain your actions in the game and the different things that you can do during the game. But the thing that rule books almost always forget to do is provide any sort of context of why you want to do those different actions. I don't know why they do this. I think that somehow, somewhere, there's this feeling that if you give an explanation for why you want to do a certain action, that you're giving away the whole strategy of the game. So this rule book just has pages and pages upon building the different buildings and the domains and connecting the different domains and the rules for doing that. But never, nowhere in the book does it explain which buildings you would want to build on which board or why would you want to connect those domains. It never goes into why you want to do these things. Why? Why not the why? How hard would that be? How hard would it be to add a sentence or two that says, players may want to connect domains in order to take control of other players' valuable domains? Then you think, oh, that's why people want to connect domains. I get it. Game companies, why don't you just come out and say these things? Because let me tell you something. That's what your players, that's what your consumers are trying to decipher when they're getting into this rule book. They're trying to figure out, all right, how do I use these actions to help me win? Why do you keep it such a big secret? Why do you make these nice people go through all these cognitive loops to try to figure out what the reason is for doing these actions in the game? Why can't you just come out and say it? It would make things so much nicer. How hard would it be in the rule book to include a little bit when you talk about connecting buildings? In the Age of Might, players will want to develop strong control of a valuable domain. They would do this by connecting large buildings to blue buildings to make it worth more money. Thank you! Now I get what you're talking about. Now all this other gobbledygook makes sense. Please, provide some context. So this is my plea. 
This is what I'm begging you to do, game companies and, and people who explain rules, all right? You need to give a good introduction that explains both thematically and mechanically what players are trying to do. If you're going to go over the components, provide a reason for how those components are used in the game. And if you're going to go over the list of all the actions, you have to explain why players want to do those actions to allow players to make connections to understand what they're doing in the game. Please, will you start doing this? Actually, I think about it a little bit more. Um, I, I don't think that you should do this because if, if you start doing this, then, then I'll be out of a, a job. I won't be able to create these fun podcasts anymore and, and I won't be able to complain about it anymore. So um, just keep doing things the way that you're doing it so that I can keep making these podcasts. Actually, I have a, I have a great idea. Um, you know, we're, my family, we, we just had a baby. We're on one, one income. So if you want someone to design sort of those teaching booklets for you, um, I would be happy to do that for a meager fee. So large game companies, if you're, if you're looking to hire someone, you know, um, you know, I have to feed my baby. So uh, drop me an email at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. I'm only half kidding. I know at least one large game company listens to this. If you want to hire me on to design some teaching guides for your game, I would be really happy to do that. So contact me. And if not, then I guess I'll just have to keep putting out episodes of this podcast. I'll just have to keep making these teaching guides for all of you. <sighs> okay, I got to take some deep breaths because... I guess uh, it's just something, um, you know, it's a topic near and dear to my heart. And, uh, and I'm glad I was able to get all that off my chest. Well, that's it. That's today's musings. That's Kronos. I hope I've deciphered this puzzle for a lot of you so that you can go out and enjoy this great game. And if you have more games like this, games that are really good games that are hidden behind a, a, a nasty, particularly nasty set of rules, please suggest them to me there at the Guild. Let me know about them and so that I can consider them for a future episode. This is really what this show is all about. It's about helping people understand and be able to teach some great, fun games, even if they have a nearly incomprehensible set of rules. So I hope you'll, you'll give Kronos a shot. I hope maybe I gave you something to think about as far as rule books and as far as delivering better game explanations. So that's all I've got for you for this time. I really hope you enjoyed that. Look to hear another great explanation in just a few short weeks. And also, I'm going to, as a little Easter egg here at the end, after the outro, I'm going to include the segment uh, that Tom Vassell and I did together talking about some of our favorite games. So if you didn't hear that on the Dice Tower, I hope you'll stay tuned for that. That's really a special segment. But until episode number 23, I want to say thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. One, two, three, four. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Sturm. How to Play is a one-man, independent podcast not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek, and even just thumb announcements of new episodes. 
We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own. And that is due to your own continuing support. Please consider supporting the show in some way today. I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast's home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. In which two games are compared and contrasted, only one can win. Which will it be? Hello, Dice Tower listeners. This is Ryan Sturm from the How to Play podcast. I'm Tom Vassell. And we're here for a very special board game grudge match. I know you're used to hearing Tom and Eric duke it out on this, but Tom and I, you may have noticed, have developed somewhat of a rivalry between the two of us, so we figured, why not get on the air together and duke it out in a board game grudge match? Sound like a plan, Tom? I haven't been paying attention. All right, let's get to it. But what game should we choose? Well, let's go with our favorite games. My favorite game, Age of Steam, versus Tom's favorite game, Duel of Ages. It's a battle for the ages. Now, from an outsider's view, these games might not seem similar at all. Tom, explain to the listeners how these games are similar. I, I would say similar because they're not quite exactly the same similar. Okay, well, let's just go with it anyways. Here we go. Duel of Ages versus Age of Steam. Let's start with Tom's favorite game, Duel of Ages. Tom, do you want to go ahead and describe this one? This time we're talking about an old, old, old game. I don't know the best way to describe it because I fell asleep playing it. It's boring. Ugh. All right, well, then I, I guess I'll take over, Tom. Uh, the idea of this game is you have figures from history getting together on some outer plane or something, battling it out in a series of challenges, like solving the riddle of the Sphinx and all sorts of other mystical tests, which sounds really cool, and the idea for the game is great. But what I don't particularly care for about the game is that it ends up being a lot of dice rolling and chart checking and dice rolling and chart checking over and over again. For example, say my dude wanted to hit your dude. All right, so I need to check my character's melee rating and compare that to your character's reacting rating. Excellent. Now I need to add terrain modifiers and roll two dice. Ooh, a hit. Now I need to check my penetration rating against your armor rating, and we need to roll the dice again. Hooray! Now you get to attack me. Check your melee rating against my reacting rating, adjusting for terrain. Roll the dice. Ooh, it's a hit. Now check your penetration rating against my armor rating. And so on, and so on, and so forth. You get to do this about 4,000 times during the game. It loses its charm pretty quickly. Wouldn't you agree, Tom? I literally did fall asleep during a game of this one time. So I was almost ready to cry. Uh-huh. Yeah, but what about those exciting tests you get to undertake, right? Like the riddle of the Sphinx? 
Well, those are handled in a similarly exciting way. I have to check the challenge rating of the test, and then I have to check how smart I am or how quick I am, depending on what kind of challenge it is thematically, and then I roll two dice. If I roll well, hooray, my team gets ahead. If I roll poorly, I get transported across at the beginning of the board, and I have to spend seven or eight turns walking all the way back to that spot to get the privilege to roll the dice again. Alright, maybe I'm being a bit hard on this game. But Tom, I understand your feelings of this game have changed a bit recently. I, I just don't have a lot of respect for this, and I can't say any re other reason than just it's a lethargetic experience. Wow, really, that's that's quite a turn of events. I mean, it, it used to be your favorite game. You used to talk about it all the time. I'm setting, I'm setting a standard low here. Alright, so next let's talk about Age of Steam. Now, this is my baby. I just, I just love this game. This game is about building track and delivering goods. You've got the tense auction, the difficult decisions of where to build track, in planning and setting up your routes, and of course what really separates Age of Steam is the tightness and difficulty of the game, which makes each game a struggle and a challenge to attempt to succeed each time. Now Tom, I know in the past you've talked badly about this game, uh, but I know you told me before we got started here that you really had a chance to dig into this game with a few more plays in the last few weeks. Has your opinion on the game changed at all? I know this is a big shock, this game is really great. I do love that. Well, I just, I, I just, every time I play that game, I have a blast. Wow. Age of Steam is a game that as soon as I played it, I said, man, this is one that's going to be around for a while. And I was impressed that my daughter and wife played it. It seemed like everywhere I played it, people just loved it. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. I'm glad you finally come around to the Age of Steam brotherhood. Welcome, Tom. Well, I think that pretty much clears things up. Uh, Age of Steam is a far superior game to Duel of Ages in every way. What what Ryan said is true. I think Age of Steam has already pile-drived Duel of Ages to the ground. Well, who knew what was brewing into a bitter rivalry could end in such an amicable fashion. Thanks, Tom, so much for having me on. I very much appreciate it. I know you'd encourage your listeners to come over and check out the How to Play podcast at howtoplaypodcast.com. I hear How to Play is your favorite gaming podcast besides The Dice Tower. I really highly recommend it. To me, it's, it's great. <laughs> thanks, Tom. That means a lot coming from you, and thanks again for having me on. Thanks so much. I do love Age of Steam. I do love Age of Steam. I do love Age of Steam. So there it was. I hope you enjoyed that short segment. And I, I guarantee that Tom Vassell did say all those words. Maybe not in, those, in that context, and maybe not with me, but he did definitely say all those words. So thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom, for helping me put that segment together. Goodbye, everybody.